Well, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. Uh, you all got a bit more sleep last night, so have a bit more energy this morning, right? Or we just stayed up an hour later. That works too. <laughs> well, welcome to week eight of our series, our fall series that we've been calling Gods at War. I know this series has been challenging for a lot of us, myself included. Like, if I'm honest with you, often when I preach a message, the week before, like the, when I prep it, the two weeks before when I prep it, I'm preaching that same message to myself. Because very often it's easy for us in our lives to turn to false gods, to turn to the idols of this age, to, to worship these things that promise us the world but truly can't provide us with anything. And we worship things instead of the one who created those things. Instead of turning to God for comfort or pleasure or, or value or our identity, we, we turn to the world. We turn to, to TV for entertainment and comfort. We turn to, to sex and to money for, for pleasure. We, we turn to people and their opinion of us for value turn to all of these different things to try and tell us who we are and how we should feel instead of turning to our Creator who knows us and loves us and wants to freely give us all that He has for us. See, we believe that God, it says in the Bible, that, that God is a jealous God. Not that He's, he's like vindictive or like wants only you. He, he wants your attention. He doesn't want to be second place in your life. He wants to be the only place in your life. He wants to be first in your life. Because he knows that we become like who we worship. So when we worship things, comfort, pleasure, people-pleasing, value, money, that we'll become like them. And he's calling us to focus on him and him alone. See, in Deuteronomy 6, the author of Deuteronomy, he puts it this way. This, this verse is a part of a passage of Scripture that is known in the Hebrew, in the Jewish culture, as the Shema. So it was used and spoken. Parents and children were, would recite this daily over themselves. And it says this. It says, you shall love, this is 6 verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now I was reading this verse, and I was like, okay, this is great. What does this verse mean? And so I looked up the Hebrew word for all in this passage. It's the word kol, which literally means with everything. With everything in your being, with everything in your heart, with everything in your soul, with everything you have, love the Lord. And in the context to whom this was written in that day and age, this is not just talking about emotional love. It's not just talking about passion for somebody. Like, that's an aspect of it. But it's also talking about covenant loyalty. Loyalty to God means to love God. We love God with our emotions, but also in serving Him and only Him. So God is looking for people who will love Him with all their being. 
Jesus, in Matthew, he says that this is the most important commandment. This is the first commandment. This is most important, that we love God with all that we have. Not with 50%. Not with the majority's share, but with everything. Love God. See, if we are to dethrone the false gods that we worship in our lives, it starts with a pure, full love for our Father. As we carry on our series, though, this morning, I want to talk about one, one of the false gods that I know for a long time I struggled with in my own life. And that's the false god of romance. See, for a very long time in my life, I had this idea in my head that if I didn't have a girlfriend, something was wrong with me. And that's a lie. And it became a false god in my life. But I do want to clarify right off the top, this message is not only for those of you who are like single and you're like, I'm ready to be dating. This message is also for those of you who are married. You might be like, oh, I don't need romance. Well, your spouse is a really lucky person if that's the case. Um, first of all, second of all, uh, <laughs> we all look for somebody to complete us. This isn't about, like, you shouldn't look for people that love you. No, no. This is about who completes you. And very often, the person that we're closest to in our life, our spouse, is that object that we, we, the person we look to for completion. We look to them for value. We look to them for affirmation. We look to them for love. We look to them for identity instead of looking to our Father. As well, you might be here and you're like, well, I'm single and I'm happy. That's great. Amazing. But we still all have the tendency to look to other people to complete us. Might not be a romantic partner. Might be a friend. But this message is especially for those of you who, like me, who are like I was, wondering what is wrong with me that I can't find somebody who to love me? Why do they keep leaving me? Why does this keep happen, happening? People who are looking for their worth in a relationship with someone else. Who think, well, if I am not in a relationship, well, there must be something wrong with me. See, this is what the God of romance does. Tries to convince us that love is so important that if we don't have it, something is wrong with us. And we live in a culture, really, if we're honest with ourselves, that is infatuated with this idea. This idea of the fairy tale romance. If only I can find my own beast to turn into a handsome prince for me. If only I can find my own Kristoff to deal with my crazy ex-boyfriend. 
If only I can find my own Prince Charming who will search the kingdom with my glass slipper. Like, can you imagine how stinky that slipper would be and he's just carrying it around looking for the girl and by the time he finds her, how many feet have been in it? Like, oh my goodness. But as a culture, we, it's like we are stuck in that old Beatles song. All you need is love. Love is all I need. If I have love, I have everything. If I don't, then something is lacking. And what this, what, what this idea does is it convinces us that we need someone to complete us. That our value, our pleasure, our comfort, what we want in life can be fulfilled by one other individual. And the danger of that is so many people get, or fall in love, get married on this principle that the other person's going to complete them. And those same people end up five years later divorced because they realized, oh, that person is just as broken and messed up as I am. See, people can't complete you. People can compliment you. They can compliment your strengths. They can compliment your skills. They can compliment your weaknesses, but no one can complete you. But so many people live on this treadmill of looking for somebody to make their life perfect. And it just sets you up for disappointment. And it sets your partner up for discouragement. Because no one is perfect, and no one will be able to provide you with what you're looking for, except God. Now, I do want to be clear in this message. Because whenever the church talks about marriage, very often the message is, you all should be married. I want to be clear off the top. That is not the point of this message. Say that with me. That is not the point of this message. See, if you're married, great. If you're single, great. If you want to be married and are single, great. That's fine. Paul puts it this way in, in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, to the unmarried and the widows, so that's the people who are not married and whose spouses have died, I say that it is good for them to remain unmarried as I am. But if they are not practicing self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. This is a very simple relationship principle. If you're not married and you're happy, great. But if you're not married and you can't control yourself, find somebody. That's his point. To the married, I give this command. Not I but the Lord. I love, this is the Bible. This is written by people inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Paul in this moment is being extra clear. This isn't me. This is God. He said that the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does separate, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. That the husband should not divorce his wife. Now in that culture, the wife couldn't divorce her husband. The husband could divorce his wife. Paul is saying, it's better to remain like you are than to seek something else. And that's not to say, like, biblically we see there's a number of reasons for divorce. Unfaithfulness, adultery, abandonment, abuse. But Paul, in this moment, he even goes on to say, if you're not married, that's great. Because it means that you can set your focus on everything that God is calling you to do. 
But if you are married, that's great too. You're just a little distracted as you're pursuing God's will. All the married people are laughing right now. That's... See, I, uh, the reason I bring this up is I believe that there's been a generation of men and women who have been taught this lie that if I don't have a man or a woman in my life who loves me, then something is flawed with me. Something is wrong with me. And there's so many people who grow up and get married and, and, and look to this idea of, I need someone else to complete me. And let me tell you, that's a lie. Because God created you the way he did for a reason, and he did not make a mistake. He did not make a mistake. It's not like he made me perfect and my wife perfect and you, oh, well, we'll mix in a little bit of bad in there. No, no, no. God formed us all in our mother's wombs. God knew us. He chose us before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1 says, to be holy and blameless in his sight. We were made in the image of God. You don't need somebody to complete you because God made you perfect the way you are. Now, marriage is a gift from God. If I had time, I would go into the whole theology of marriage, but that's not the point of this message. Marriage is a gift. There is value in it. But the point I'm trying to make is if you're married, great. If you're single, great. If you're single and you really want to be married, great. If you're single and you're happy, great. Your relationship status does not affect how God sees you. And your relationship status does not affect your value in God's eyes. You know, backstage, before, before I came out for this message, one of our prayer team members came and, and she, she, she was reading from Matthew where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. She just had the sense that there's people who, who are struggling in their marriages. Maybe there's abuse, maybe there's trauma, whatever it is. Let me tell you, that's not God's design for your, for your life. But also, let me tell you, there's hope. Because if we can all focus on Jesus and put him first in our lives instead of our spouse, our marriages will be much healthier. You know, there's a stat... Uh, not, this isn't even in just in church worlds, and this is an old, old stat, but it's like something like 50% of all marriages fail, including in the church. That is tragic to me. Because that means that people are looking to one another for completion instead of looking to God. But only God can provide us with all that we need. If you're married or not, your spouse or any potential future spouse will not be able to supply you with all of the comfort and pleasure and joy and value and significance and identity that you're looking for. That can only come from God. In Genesis chapter, I want to say it's 29, there we go. Genesis chapter 29, we find a story about a guy by the name of Jacob and his, his first wife, Leah. 
Now, if you know the story of Jacob, you know that Jacob um, has been not the nicest of people growing up. He was the younger of two brothers. His brother Esau was born moments before him. And, and, and so his brother Esau, as the firstborn in that culture, received, was supposed to receive two things Jacob didn't get. First was a blessing where his dad would lay hands on him and bless him. And the second was the birthright, which was a double portion of the inheritance. Basically, your dad dies, you have a, one brother, the older brother gets $2,000, the younger gets $1,000. That's the principle of the birthright. And Jacob is cunning, and he's deceptive. And so he first, he convinces his brother to sell him the birthright for a bowl of stew. It's a whole message for another day. But secondly, he goes in and impersonates his brother when his father's dying and can't really see and, get, and steals the blessing. So the story goes on that, that, that Esau, Jacob's brother, is mad. Like, you can imagine. Your brother just stole everything you deserved as the firstborn. Like, he is mad. And so Jacob flees to the land of Paddan Aram. There he meets this beautiful girl by the name of Rachel. The story picks up in, in verse 15. We see that Jacob, he comes to Rachel's father, Laban, and he's like, hey, I've got nothing. Can I work for you? And it says, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, the principle of this was Jacob had run away with nothing. He's got nothing, no money, no stuff. He, 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 he's got nothing. And he comes to Laban. He's like, can I stay here? And Laban's like, yeah, you can work for me. What should I pay you? I'm not going to like defraud you by not paying you. Now, in that day and age, there was this thing called the bride price. So to get married, you had to pay the bride's father. I'm glad that's not a thing anymore. But... <laughs> I'm sure my father-in-law wishes it was. But, <laughs> but the bride price in, in that day and age, like when Jacob was around, was between 30 and 40 shekels of silver. One shekel of silver was one month's wages for the typical worker. So you paid 30 to 40 months worth of wages to get married. So Laban, he comes along, and, and Jacob needs to work, and Jacob's like, I'll work for you. And Laban's like, what shall I pay you? It says, verse 16, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. Love that description. But Rachel was graceful and beautiful. You know, some other translations say that Leah's eyes were delicate. I think regardless of if you translate it as weak or delicate, it's still a slap in the face. Like, Rachel is so beautiful. Oh, Leah, I guess you have pretty eyes. It's like a slap in the face. It says, Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. The story goes on that 
after this point, after seven years of serving, Jacob's like, hey, Laban, about this deal, let me have my wife. Let's consummate the marriage. You know what that means. Um, like, let's get this thing done. And, and Laban's like, of course. And so they have the ceremony. They have the feast. And, and when night falls, Jacob is in the bridal chamber, and in comes the bride. But unbeknownst to him, remember, world without electricity, no bright lights, nothing like that. I'm, I'm guessing that the, the, the bride was like, oh, no, turn off the lights. Don't, don't blow out that candle. Stop there. Oh, boy. And Jacob thinks it's Rachel, but it's Leah. And she comes in, and he wakes up the next morning after they've consummated the marriage, and he looks over to his beautiful bride, and, oh, look, there's her weak-eyed sister. And Jacob naturally is mad. He's like, why did you do this? And I, I just think it's ironic that the deceiver gets deceived. Like, he never thought that this was a possibility. Like, just a whole thing. But, but Laban's like, oh, no, well, she had to get married before Rachel should get married. I'll give you Rachel if you serve me another seven years. So this is the deal. This is before God's like, oh, by the way, polygamy, bad idea. And Jacob is married to these two sisters, and he loves Rachel. But I can imagine he doesn't harbor very good feelings towards Leah after being tricked into sleeping with her. So it says this, verse 30, So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. That breaks my heart. Leah is looking for love. Her and her sister are married to the same man. I can't imagine how crazy that would be. And Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah. It says, verse 31, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked on my affliction. What affliction? that she wasn't loved, that her husband didn't like her. Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. This is a glimpse into her psychology and what she's feeling in this moment. Because the Lord has heard that I am hated. My husband hates me. He has given me the son also, and she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be joined to me, because I've borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. Now these three sons, the way she names them gives us a glimpse into what she's feeling. Like the Bible, it doesn't go into depth beyond this to explain what Leah is feeling. But she names her sons after her feelings. So first one she names, I believe it's Reuben. Throw that slide up. Which means, in the Hebrew, to see. The Lord has looked. He has seen my affliction. He has seen that my husband doesn't like me. So he's given me this child. 
Simeon means to hear, the Lord has heard that I am hated. So he's given me this son also. The third one is Levi, which means to attach. She's like, now that I have three sons, my husband will finally love me. I can, my heart just goes out for this girl. Because this is a day and age when divorce wasn't really an option. She was stuck in this marriage with her husband who had another wife, and, 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 and he liked the other wife more than her. And he didn't, it doesn't say he abused her. It doesn't say he did anything like that. He just didn't like her. And she is craving, she is pursuing his affection, his love. Now, in that day and age, marriages were more so social contracts than relationships. But we do see in this, in this story the yearning of this poor girl's heart to be loved, to have a husband who would love her and take care of her and make her feel valuable and important. But she doesn't have that. She has three sons, yet her husband still doesn't care. But I love the next verse. It says she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah and then she ceased bearing first three sons. I want my husband to love you, me. Maybe he'll love me now. Maybe he'll love me now. Maybe he'll love me now. And then finally with the third one, she's like, God, I'll praise you. God, I'll put you first. God, thank you for this child. My husband might hate me, but thank you for this child. And what I really, really love about this is that out of Judah came the tribe of Judah. And out of the tribe of Judah came a king named King David, who was considered a king after God's own heart. And out of David's lineage, out of his genealogy, came a man named Jesus, who saved the world from their sins. See, the moment that Leah shifts her attention from what she's lacking in her relationship with her husband to praising God for his goodness, for what he's done for her, when she shifts her focus out of that child that is born, comes the savior of the world. Now we know from the remainder of the story in Genesis 30, that Leah ultimately goes back. Her next two sons she names after how her husband doesn't like her anymore. But I just love this momentary grasp, this moment where she realizes, my husband might not like me, but that's okay. I will still praise the Lord. See, in Luke chapter 14, we find this fun passage by Jesus, and he's being followed by this large crowd, and Whenever large crowds start to follow Jesus, they expect him to perform miracles and, you know, make food out of nothing. And he likes to chase them away with harsh words. 
Jesus was the greatest church builder ever. Billions of people serve him, yet when people followed him, he chased them away. He says this, verse, verse 26, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Now, in that day and age, this was harsh. Still is today. But their culture was all about the family. Family and honor consisted and controlled every aspect of being. And if you didn't honor your family, you were kind of like viewed as a pariah in society. People didn't like you. Family and honor was everything. And Jesus is like, hate them. Not just don't love them, hate them, he says. And I think this can be difficult for us even to understand. Because it's like, what do you mean, Jesus? Hate the people who raised me? Hate the people who love me? Hate my wife who chose to say yes to me? It's like, oh, we're married now. We can't love each other anymore. Like, what do you mean, Jesus? So I looked at, I looked at the, the Greek wording for this. And the Greek word for hate in this passage is the word miseo which means to love less than something else. Not to be like, oh, I can't be your friend anymore. I hate you. Get away from me. It's the idea of loving something less than something else. So what is the point Jesus is making? Well, his point is really, really simple. Will you love me first? Before your family, before your friends, before your kids, before your wife, Will you love me first? See, in my life, the priority goes God, Kim, family, friends, work. That's a proper priority. Because if I put Kim first, that is a disordered love, and she has become an idol in my life. God must be first in our lives before our families, before our siblings, before our significant others. God must be first. But this is what the God of romance, the false God of romance, tries to twist. Tries to make it life partner, then maybe God. Or life partner, family, friends, work, God? tries to distort that. And it tries to tell us this idea that we need someone to love us in order for our lives to be complete. That we need the fairy tale ending. It's like, if you just get to the wedding, your life will be perfect. Let me tell you, married people know this. The problems start at the wedding. Say that with all the love in the world for my wife. Like, I, I, I'm just, it's unrealistic to think your life will be perfect after you get married. Problems will always arise. Why? Because she is just as broken or he is just as broken as you are. And broken people break people. So when we look to somebody else who is just as broken as we are to supply us with joy or, or comfort or or. or or value. They can't do that, not perfectly. They can only complement us. They cannot complete us. Because only God 
can complete us. Only He can provide us with true joy, true comfort, true value, our true identity. Because your identity, it cannot come from somebody else. It can only come from your Father in heaven who created you. Who gets to define an invention? It's the inventor. Who gets to define you? It's God, because he created you. See, in my own life, I spent a lot of time as a teenager and even a young adult worshiping the false god of romance. See, I was single for 20 years of my, lo- my life. For the first, like, 10-ish, I didn't really care because girls gross. But when I became a teenager and started, like, feeling those feelings and stuff, I, I, my identity became wrapped up in this idea of, well, I don't have a girlfriend, so something must be wrong with me. For years in high school and, and in college, I, I would pursue after like this idea of romance, this idea of love, of having somebody love me because I felt that I was unimportant, ugly, and stupid if I didn't have someone affirming me. My value was tied up in my relationship status. So the longer it went where I didn't have a girlfriend, and part of it was I was I had high standards, and so I'd get to know certain people and be like, ooh, nope. And part of it was I was a coward and was too scared to ask anybody else out because I was afraid of rejection. But when Kim met me the first time, she thought I was a jerk. I just love dropping that in there for you, dear. But I was searching for someone to prove to me that I was important. And let me tell you, it wasn't until it was about a year before Kim and I got together, it wasn't until I realized that my value, my identity, my purpose, my life, my joy, things I've been searching for in, in a potential girlfriend, it was only when I realized that only God could provide those that things started to shift. And I remember about a year before Kim and I got together, there was a moment where I was just like, oh, I can't just look to that girl and that girl and that girl and that girl for affirmation. I can look to my father. And I started to say, God, even though you know the desires of my heart, and my heart is breaking because I haven't found anyone, God, I will still trust you. God, I'll put you first before the prospect, before the potential relationship, I will put you first. I'm not going to say it was perfect. You know, a lot of Christians, we wish that. Come to the altar, pray the prayer, and boom, your life is perfect. That's not how it works. But I started to remind myself, my value comes from God. 
value comes from God. Value comes from God. About a year later, Kim started to like And the rest is history. But now that we're married, we've been married over five years now. Now that we're married, it's from that same foundation. Saying, God, you are first in our lives. That when something bad happens, we have a stable foundation for our relationship. When I say something to hurt her, believe me, it's more often than I'd like. And when she very rarely says something to hurt me, it's from that stable foundation because my identity is not tied up in her opinion of me. She might not like me, but that's fine because God likes me. It's from that foundation of putting God first that we can walk out our relationship with one another. You know, if marriages would be built on a foundation of who God says we are, what he thinks of us, I would argue that probably 70% of marital problems would go away. Not that they would all go away because there's selfishness and issues like that that people have to deal with. But a lot of our problems are we're looking for them to accomplish something that they can never accomplish. Because it can only come from them. See, the false god of romance would love to keep you trapped in this idea that you need love to be us to believe that we can find life and hope and joy in, in someone else. But the truth is that can only come from the Father. So we have to base our lives on Him and what He says about us. As we close our time together, I want to encourage us all to just take a moment to connect been doing this throughout this entire series because I believe that God is a good father, that he speaks to his children. And often the struggle is we need to listen. Sometimes there's barricades, sometimes there's blocks, there's things we need to break down to hear his voice clearly. But God is a good father. He speaks to his children. So I want to encourage us right now and just, just take a moment out distractions, but ask God this question. Ask him, God, has the false God of romance been ruling my life? If so, how? We're going to take a moment to listen for his voice, remembering that God's voice will always be loving, it will always glorify Jesus, and it will always be in line with scripture.
get the feeling that some of us are struggling with this God. A lot of the problems you've been having in your relationships is because you've looked for love from people who weren't ready to give it. And you've been willing to compromise your morals in order to keep it. But no one who truly loves you will force you to compromise who God made you to be. So feel like some of us, we need to go home and we need to repent to our spouse. Say, I'm sorry for trying to make you my God in my life. I'm sorry for putting this pressure and this expectation on you that you can't fulfill. Please forgive me and help me. spoke to you. If you reveal the way that the false god of romance has been ruling in your life, I want you to say this to God. Say, God, I repent of worshiping the god of romance, and I renounce any agreement I've made with it. I give this idol to you. What do you want to give me in exchange? We always replace a lie with the truth. So ask God, what do you have for me in exchange? arise and we don't really like our significant other that we would turn to you we would let you reveal your truth to us Father I pray for those who are in the room who want a relationship but aren't in one God I just pray that you would recenter our focus on you not that in doing so we'll 
magically make somebody appear out of the woodwork, but that in doing so, our heart will be tuned to you and we will be more successful in any relationship we enter. Lord, reveal yourself to us and help us to put you first in our lives. I pray this in your holy, holy name. Amen.